0: Um, I bring you greetings from Placerita Bible Church. We pray for you guys frequently. I'm going to move this. That's okay. Uh, we pray for you guys frequently. We are thankful for your church. At Placerita, we view it as an immense blessing from God that there are so many like-minded and strong churches in Santa Clarita Valley. We don't view it as a competition where we're trying to steal members from one another. Rather, We view it as a partnership. We live in a dark World. And so we view you guys and all the other churches in Santa Clarita Valley as sister churches. And we're partnering together to scream and to shout. Of the majesty of our great God. And so you guys have been in our prayers um, as you've been searching for a pastor. And we're so excited that that day is here for you guys in these next couple of weeks. And we'll be continuing to pray that that process goes well. Um, you've been in our prayers, just even knowing some of the health issues your elders are dealing with. I'd like to just say hi to Matt Davis real quick. I know he's at home watching online. Uh, Matt and I text frequently. Matt, uh, it's been a blessing just to see the way you've walked through your trial um, that the Lord has brought to you, and so just thankful your surgery went well, and we'll pray for continued recovery. All right. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 55, please, Psalm 55. That will be our passage together this morning, and I will read it aloud for us. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and am surely distracted. Because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they shake wickedness down upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has covered me. I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away, I would lodge in the wilderness, Selah. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around upon her walls, and wickedness and mischief are in her midst. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has magnified himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my close companion and my familiar friend. We who had sweet counsel together, walked in the house of God in the throng. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling and in their midst. As for me, I shall call upon God, and Yahweh will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I will bring my complaint and moan, and he will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me, for there are many who strive with me. God will hear and answer them, even the one who sits enthroned from of old, Selah. Because they do not change and do not fear God. My companion has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. He has violated his covenant. His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden upon Yahweh, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. But you, O oh God, will bring them down to the pit of corruption. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. Let's pray together. Holy, awesome God of heaven and earth, thank you for this book. Thank you for the fact that we can hold the living and breathing word of God in our hands, and we can turn to it for truth for protection from sin, for guidance, for wisdom, and for comfort. Father, thank you that while we pass through this decaying and uncertain world as sojourners, we do so with a hope, with an anchor, with a certainty that comes from clinging to you, our rock of salvation, our refuge in the storm, our rescue from sin and death. And as we look at your word together now, God, may we do so with a hunger to know you in deeper ways with a desire to reflect your character in our lives as we leave this place today may the way we live and the words that we speak shout your praises to the lost and the dying world around us as we proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light amen in his beloved and classic allegory the pilgrim's progress john bunyan describes the christian life from the viewpoint of a pilgrim on a journey That pilgrim, who's also named Christian, begins his journey with a heavy burden on his back, an overwhelming weight that he carries with him everywhere he goes. That burden, we're told, is the knowledge of his sin and his guilt before the holy king of the celestial city. And in a moving and beautiful account, just a few chapters into the book, we see how Christian was freed from that burden of sin. We see how at the cross, his guilt, his shame fell away, and he was filled with wonder and awe, with joy and relief at the forgiveness that he was given because of the work of Christ. That pilgrim now continues his journey without that weight on his back, without that burden bearing him down. And yet, as Christian continues his journey, though, it is not a trouble-free journey. It's not completely smooth. Even though he's forgiven and free, Christian still faces trials on his journey. He faces temptations, fears, doubts, unwise decisions, and other difficulties along the way. His journey is filled with immense highs as he focuses on the grace of God, but he's also had moments, though, where he's dealing with deep lows and and sobering realities of, of despair and discouragement. His emotions fluctuate from great joy to depression. And while the burden of his sin is gone, once and for all taken care of at the cross, on his journey towards the celestial city, there are times when he still feels weighed down though by the hard and the difficult things he faces along the way. The longer I've been a Christian, the more I've come to appreciate Bunyan's description of this journey. Because I've seen myself in the pilgrim so many different days. There are days when I look at at what God has done in my life, and I see the beauty of life. I see that it's a wonderful gift from God. I'm easily able to give thanks, to see the beauty in the everyday small things, to be able to, to rejoice that the fact that the holy, majestic God of heaven and earth loved me and redeemed me for reasons unknown to me. There are days where no matter what happens, I find that I can easily rest, not just in the sovereignty of God, but in the goodness of His sovereignty. But I also have days when I'm weary, when I'm worn out, when I'm tired. Days when I'm discouraged and weighed down by the difficulties of life in this fallen world. I have days when I struggle to remind myself of the truths that I know from God's word. I mean, let's be honest. I have days when I even struggle to actually want to read God's word. I have days when it's not easy to take every thought captive. Days when I'm wrestling and I'm battling. And days when I just want to quit. Anyone else in here? ever had those kind of days, those kind of battles and struggles. I think that all of us would admit we've had days like this to varying degrees, but it's not something we like talking about. I think it makes us a little uncomfortable to speak in these terms. When we have these struggles, I think we often feel alone. We often feel a little bit of guilt at these struggles. We don't want other people to know about them because aren't we always supposed to be happy and joyful? Aren't we always supposed to be content and not complain, especially at church when we're around other believers? So we go to church, we interact with our friends, with our fellow believers, and our family at church. They ask how we're doing, and we'll face a brief internal struggle where we wonder, how much should I say? And in the end, we often answer with a, I'm fine, or maybe I'm good. And then we walk away from that interaction a little torn about the answer that we gave because inside we may not really be doing that well. Inside we may actually be hurting and wrestling. Throughout scripture, though, we see examples of God's people struggling with some of these same issues. I believe there's comfort in knowing that God's prophet and his people faced the same struggles we faced. God's people faced discouragement and doubt and sin and fear and heartache. Men like Moses and Joshua and Elijah battled these things. Hannah pours her heart out to the Lord because it's aching and about to break in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Paul cries out to God about his trial, and he says, please take it away, because he doesn't want to deal with it anymore. In the book of Psalms, we see the various authors of Psalms poetically capture these same struggles that we deal with in song after song after song. The psalm writer David battled these issues. David, the mighty warrior, faced fears and doubts. David, the military conqueror, dealt with heartache and with despair. David, the king of Israel, the one that God said is a man after my own heart, dealt with being weighed down by life. In multiple psalms, over and over again, David pours his heart out to the Lord. He expresses his need for God to hear him, to help him, and to answer him as he faced different hardships and difficulties. One of those psalms written by David is our passage today, Psalm 55. In this psalm, David uses some of his strongest language to describe his hurt and his sorrow. He expresses anger and frustration. He lets the reader know that he's tired and afraid and he doesn't want to deal with life anymore. He just wants to escape it. But in this psalm, we also see that David runs to God. In the midst of his great trial, he preaches truth to himself and David the shepherd finds rest and comfort in the care of the great shepherd. This morning, I want to look at this passage with you, and I want to ask the question, what was it that brought David comfort? What gave him strength when he was weak, and what can we learn from the song that he wrote? We'll break our chapter up into four sections this morning, four sections. Number one, we'll look at David's plea to the Lord, David's plea to the Lord. We'll then look at David's anguish that he shared before the Lord, David's anguish. And then we'll look at David's betrayal, what caused his anguish. And finally, we'll look at David's trust and his deliverance. David's trust and his deliverance. Let's look first at David's plea to the Lord in verses 1 through 3. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and am surely distracted because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked. For they shake wickedness down upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. David begins his psalm begging the Lord to be near to him, pleading with God to listen to him. He asks God not to hide himself from him. When he says, give heed to me, God, in verse 2, it means pay attention to me. He's asking God to pay attention to him. I remember many years ago when my children were toddlers, I'd come home from work one day, and they were trying to tell me about their day excitedly, and I was distracted on my phone, sadly. And I remember, though, a little frustrated voice crying out, saying, Dad, you're not listening to me. Pay attention. That's David's mindset in this verse, though. He's saying, pay attention to me, please, God. Listen to what I'm saying. Have mercy on me and answer me, please, oh, God. You can hear the desperation in David here in this opening cry. I'm restless, he says. I I can't settle my heart and my mind. My complaint is so great. My trial is so great. It's so heavy, I can't be still. At the end of verse 2, in the Legacy Standard Version, he says, "I'm, I'm surely distracted in my complaint. In the ESV, it translated as in, I moan. It literally means to make an uproar, to agitate greatly. David is describing an internal emotional uproar and agitation as the result of this situation that he's going through. David's saying, God, my trial is great. I'm a mess right now, and I need you. So please be there for me. Don't hide yourself from me. Now, theologically, David knows that God is there with him, he knows that God is not hidden. In Psalm 139, David asks the question, where can I go from your spirit? And he answers, and answers that are very familiar to us. He says, if I send to heaven, you're there. If I go to Sheol, you're there. If I go to the bottom of the ocean, you're there. If it's dark, you're there and you see me. You're there with the baby in the mother's womb. David knows that God is not far off. He knows he can't hide from God. He knows that God is not blind to his struggles. What he's saying, though, is in this particular trial, In this particular moment, I don't feel near to you, God. In this moment, I feel like I'm alone and I can't handle it. So I'm begging you to help me, God. In verse 3, he starts to paint a little bit of a, a broad picture of what he's struggling with. He describes the voice of the enemy holding him down, the pressure of the wicked all around him, shaking wickedness down upon him. His enemy is bringing about personal attacks on him. They're coming after him. That word for noise in verse three literally means like a bleeding or a thundering. It's almost this idea that he's saying, God, I can't even think straight because of the noise of the enemy who's coming after me now. So his opening plea is to cry to God, to be near to him. And then he opens up about why he needs God to be near though. And this is where we'll see David's anguish in verses four through eight. David's anguish. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has covered me. Oh, I said how that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander away, and I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and the tempest. David's now pouring his heart out to God after his initial plea. He started by saying, God, I need you. I'm overwhelmed by what's happening. And now in verses four through eight, he says, and here's what being overwhelmed is doing to me internally, emotionally. My heart is in anguish. The word for anguish there literally means to writhe in pain. When he speaks of terror, he's conveying this idea of dread and a horrible, paralyzing fear. It's a very visceral picture that David is painting here of personal agony and pain. He's in a situation that makes him understand and sympathize with the psalm writer in Psalm 42 and 43 when that psalm writer cries out, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? This trial, this situation that David is facing is causing him deep emotional turmoil. He's feeling pressure from all sides. There's no escape from it. There's no rest. And at his breaking point, he looks to heaven and he says, God, I'm hurting and I need you that's david's anguish here he's crying out to god we're reminded in the new testament of the same truth that we have a loving father that we can cry out to in times of need romans eight fifteen and galatians 4 6 tell us that not only did god save us in christ he adopted us as his children he didn't just wipe away our sin though he didn't wipe away the sin of the slaves he made those same redeemed slaves his beloved children And just like children run to a parent when they're scared, when they're afraid, and when they're hurting, we can run to God, our Father, when we are afraid and struggling in life, and we can cry out, Abba, Father, I'm hurting, and I need you. And we're told in the book of Hebrews that we have a great high priest who sympathizes with all of our weaknesses, not just some of our weaknesses, with all of our weaknesses. And that high priest is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. I mentioned earlier how we're often afraid to open up, though, when we're in this kind of hurt and in these kind of struggles. We don't like talking to people around us about them. I know for myself, in my pride, I want to project strength and calm. I want people to know I'm trusting the Lord. My pride doesn't like to appear vulnerable. Look at the superscript, though, at the top of the psalm for the choir director, or to the choir director. David wrote this psalm, and he gave it to the choir director to be publicly sung by the choir. All of Israel is going to know of David's heartache and despair. But as we'll see momentarily, they'll also know of his faith and his trust. I point this out, though, because I think we need to remember that it's okay to admit we struggle, especially to fellow believers, those who can pray for us, encourage us, and bear that burden with us. We're not lesser Christians or less mature if we have these deep internal struggles or if we appear to have them more than other believers around us. Sometimes I think we need to remind ourselves that a joy-filled life and a sanctified life is not one that's without trials and struggles. Rather, it's the one that the trials and the struggles we will face drive us to the Father and grow our trust and our rest in Him. In verses 6 through 8, we see that everything David is dealing with makes him want to run away from it all. I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and the tempest. I think that every one of us has had moments like this in life, where we just wanted to get away from it all. Moments where we wish we could run away and hide. Maybe it's the result of marital struggles. Maybe it's the result of a rebellious child, a strained family relationship, Stress in the workplace, financial difficulties, medical or health struggles, an ongoing battle of sin. Whatever it may be, when we struggle, like David, we need to run to our father and pour our hearts out to him. In verses 9 through 15 and also 20 through 21, David now begins to describe what caused his anguish. We see David's betrayal. Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around upon her walls, and wickedness and mischief are in her midst. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. He's describing Jerusalem here, the city that he dwells in. And this, this destruction and this oppression and this wickedness are the result of an enemy. Verse 12, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has magnified himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my close companion and my familiar friend. We who had sweet counsel together and walked in the house of God in the throng. That literally means we worshipped together in the house of God. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling and in their midst. Verse 20, he describes this individual even more. He says, My companion has put forth his hand against those who were at peace with him. He has violated his covenant. His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. We see the specific cause of David's anguish and turmoil here. He was betrayed by a close personal friend. Not just an acquaintance or a work friend, not a neighbor or the parent of a kid on the soccer team, not a boss, not a coworker, but by someone near and dear to him. Someone who was a close compassion, someone who he worshipped in the house of God with, someone he took counsel from, had deep conversations with. David's anguish was caused by the bitter betrayal of someone so close to him that it completely rocked his world. Many commentators believe that this psalm is written during the time when David's son Absalom was attempting to overthrow his father and steal the throne. We read about that in 2 Samuel 15, we can turn there and just look at some of what's happening during this time in David's life. Absalom was David's son who already had had a bit of a strained and a tenuous relationship with his father. One of David's other sons had uh, physically dishonored Absalom's sister, Absalom didn't feel that David had handled that situation well, so he took it upon himself and he killed his half brother, he killed that son. That caused a rift in David and Absalom's relationship. Absalom fled, but after a period of time, uh, through counsel from David's counselors, Absalom was allowed back into the city, but then there was a period of a couple years where he still had no interaction with his father. Eventually, they did restore their interaction and their fellowship. But imagine that rift there, though. Imagine navigating that family relationship. Well, now, in 2 Samuel 15, we see that Absalom's returned, and now he's setting himself up to take the throne and to steal it from his father. In the first few verses of chapter 15, we read how he goes about secretly amongst the people of Israel, and he sets himself up as a judge who's going to better be able to solve their problems than his father. And we read in verse 6, Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. In verse 10, Absalom sets a conspiracy in motion where he's going to declare himself to be king. So Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. In verses 12 and four, through 14, we see that Absalom then steals one of his father's close counselors and confidants. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, from the city of Gilo. And the conspiracy grew, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after, after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape from us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. In verse 16, we see this close, I'm sorry, chapter 16, we see this close friend of David's, Ahithophel, who's now giving counsel to Absalom to not just steal the throne, but to embarrass and to degrade his father. Verses 20 through 23, we see then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give counsel, what shall we do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he's left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Verse 23, now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if it was one consulting the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. So while in Psalm 55, David is specifically referring to this one particular friend and counselor who betrayed him, 2 Samuel gives us more detail into who this person was and what David is facing at this time. He's not just dealing with the betrayal of this friend, he's also dealing with the betrayal of his own son. His own son Absalom, who'd already murdered one of his other sons, is now out to get his father. David knows there can't be two kings on the throne, so he knows that Absalom is not just trying to steal the throne, but in order to get it, Absalom's going to have to kill him. David is betrayed by his own people. His own people are following Absalom and willing to kill their king. David has to flee the city that he loves. David has to take his family, who he also knows is in danger, and try to protect them. He's betrayed. He's in danger from his own people. He has to flee his home. And on top of all of this, his close confidant, his counselor, his dear friend, abandons and betrays him to join Absalom's cause. Perhaps there's a chance that David saw this coming with Absalom. They already had this strained, tenuous relationship. Absalom's already shown a willingness to murder a family member. Maybe at some point, David did get word that, hey, your son's doing this. He's undermining you. So maybe he did see that coming. But to have Ahithophel betray him, to have his close confidant and counselor betray him, turn on him, I don't think David saw that coming. I think it blindsided him. So now, as we go back to our passage in Psalm 55, we have a little bit more insight into David's trial and what's weighing on him and his prayer in Psalm 55. His description in verses 9 through 11 of the violence and the strife in the city make a little more sense now. Because now we see he's fleeing Jerusalem. And if we continue to read in Second Samuel 15 and 16, we see that as he fled, all of a sudden, more and more people are raising their voices against him. In fact, there's one guy throwing rocks at him and cursing him as he's leaving. So there's turmoil in the city that he describes in Psalm 55. When he describes in Psalm fifty five confusing their counsel, making the counsel foolish, now we can see in Second Samuel, he specifically prayed to the Lord, and he said, Lord, make Ahithophel's counsel foolish, cause it to divide them. And that's where again we see that little bit of an insight into what's truly weighing on David. He's facing death in this moment, not just for him, but for his family and his friends who fled with him. He's facing bitter betrayal from all around him. He's facing uncertainty about the future. He's facing the prospect of either having to kill his own son or having that son kill him. And in the midst of all this, I also believe that the words spoken to David by Nathan the prophet when he rebuked David for his sin with Bathsheba are ringing in his ears. In 2 Samuel 12, after David's sin with Bathsheba, after he killed Uriah, her husband, Nathan comes to him and Nathan rebukes him. And David repents, but there's still consequence to that sin. There's forgiveness, there's restoration, but there's still consequence. And in chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, Nathan says to him, Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. That prophecy given by Nathan is now coming true right before David's eyes. So in the midst of everything that he's dealing with, in the midst of the fear, in the midst of the betrayal, he's also reliving his past sin. He knows he's been forgiven, but the consequences of that sin are now crashing down all around him. And this is pressing on him from all sides now. And there's no escape from it. Is it any wonder he wanted to run away from it all? Any wonder he wanted to flee Our struggles may not take on the same form as David's. We may not be facing death or having to flee our homes. But at some point in each of our lives, each one of us has felt betrayed by someone, maybe even someone close. Each one of us has faced the consequences of our sin, Each of us have faced trials and difficulties, some that may have been caused by our own unwise decisions, but others that weren't caused by unwise decisions. They're brought there by the providence of God, but we don't know why we're dealing with them or going through them. We've each lost loved ones. We've been hurt in friendships and in relationships. We've struggled with physical ailments. Whatever the cause, every one of us has been or will be in anguish and hurting at some point in our lives. And in those moments we will be looking for comfort and strength. So let's move on to our final point. Let's see what brought David comfort and strength during his time of anguish. David's trust and deliverance. David's trust and deliverance. We see this in verses 16 through 19 and in verses 22 through 23. As for me, I shall call upon God and Yahweh will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I will bring my complaint and moan. And he will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me. For they are many who strive with me. God will answer and hear them. Even the one who sits enthroned from all. Because they do not change and do not fear God. Do you hear the change in the tone of David's writing here in verse 16? Notice the contrast from those earlier pleas. The desperation appears to be gone. I mean, obviously we can't hear David's voice, but as we read between the lines, it's as if his entire countenance has changed in these verses. The pain and the anguish have disappeared, and there's almost just this resolve, a calmness in the midst of, of everything going on after pouring his heart out to the Lord in anguish. Now he says, but as for me, I shall call upon God, and Yahweh will save me. It's as if this burden that David had was unloaded in his running and turning to the Lord. And in doing so, that running to God was the first step. That pouring out his heart was the first step and allowing him to calm his heart. And now he can preach comforting truth to himself. David's initial plea implied that he felt alone. When we're struggling, when we're weighed down and we're not focused on God, we will feel alone. And when we feel alone and we don't feel near to God, we need to remember it's not because God's position towards us has changed. It's because our position towards him has. God hasn't moved away from us during our times of difficulty. Rather, the problem is is we haven't ran to him. I think that we also tend to not feel close to God because we often wrongly try to measure our closeness to God based on the type of day we've had. When we've spent time in the word, When we've sang worship songs all day, when we've listened to a sermon on the drive and we were patient with our kids, we call that a good day, right? Come home at the end of the day, ask your wife how she's doing. She asks, you all had a good day today. And then on that day, we then subjectively feel closer to God because of the type of day we've had. But how about on the days when we're running late, when we didn't have time for Bible reading, when we were impatient with everyone around us, when we battled sinful thoughts and responses all day, what do we then do? We call that, A bad day. And on that day, we subjectively don't feel close to God. And the truth that we need to remember in that moment though is that on my best of days, God looks at me and he sees Christ. God looks at me and he sees his beloved son. He sees my debt of sin was paid at the cross and he sees Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to me. And on my worst of days, God looks at me and he sees Christ. He sees his beloved son. He sees my debt of sin was paid at the cross. And he sees Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to me. God is steadfast and faithful towards us. And we feel, when we feel alone, it's because we're trying to handle life alone. It's because we're not running to God. We're not acknowledging our desperate need for him. Living utterly dependent on him. And when we can do that, his strength is then magnified in our weakness. As for me, I shall call upon God and Yahweh will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I will bring my complaint and moan and he will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul. In David's initial plea, he's begging for God to hear him. Now he's declaring with confidence that God will hear him. God will answer him and God will deliver him. In verse 17, we see he still has this complaint. It hasn't completely gone away. He's still experiencing turmoil, his moaning, but he says, I'm going to bring it before the Lord in the morning, during the day, at night. He's constantly running back to God and asking God for help. He's confident now because he's turning to the Lord in God's deliverance and God's sovereignty over this situation. Where did this sudden burst of confidence come from though. We see the switch in David's perspective in this chapter where he's crying out desperate here. Now he's boldly proclaiming that God's going to deliver him, but we don't necessarily see what actually caused that switch. I believe that when David took his eyes off himself and his circumstances and he fixed his gaze upon God, that's when he was able to remind himself of who God was and the truths of who God was brought David comfort and confidence in his trial. I believe that David's theology of God, his knowledge of God, his understanding of God's character were what changed David's perspective. The truths that he knew, he preached himself and he became the rock upon which David found peace. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer starts chapter one with this opening phrase. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'll say it again. That quote has been burned into my mind from the first time I read it, and I I often turn back to it. But what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because what comes into my mind when I think about God, whether it's a high view or a low view, will dictate my interactions with him. It'll dictate my dependence upon him, my trust in him, and my affection toward him. If I have a high view of God, my dependence on him is going to be higher. My trust in him will be deeper. My affection toward him will be stronger. If I have a low view of God, though, or let's even just say a middle of the road view of God, I'll be tempted to trust in myself more. I won't want to be as dependent upon him. I'll have less of a desire to praise and to exalt him. I'll be tempted to rest in my own abilities and in my own wisdom more. If I see myself as stronger than I actually am, I will not be able to see God as strong as he actually is. So to have this high view of God, I need to have a knowledge of God though. A high view of God is rooted in a knowledge of God. And this knowledge of God is not merely knowing facts about God. Growing up as a kid in the 80s and and 90s, I knew a lot about Michael Jordan. I was a basketball fan, and I liked to watch him play. And I could tell you what his stats were, and I could tell you stories about him and anecdotes that I heard. I knew a lot about Michael Jordan, but I didn't know Michael Jordan. I'd never met him. I'd never had a conversation with him. I didn't know what he was like. And I think sometimes we treat our knowledge of God that same way. We know a lot of facts about God. We can tell stories and anecdotes about God, but do we know God? Deeply, personally. John 17, 3, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they know you. Our salvation is about knowing God. Not just facts about him, but who he is. What are his attributes? What are his characteristics? What is he like? And then we dwell upon those things, and we worship him as a result. In Exodus 33 and 34, Moses says to God, God, I want to know you more that I might find favor with you. So tell me who you are. Show me your ways, he said, so that he could know you more. And God said to him, Moses, you want to know who I am? I am going to reveal myself to you, and I don't want to downplay what Moses saw, because we can't begin to imagine that. But what scripture highlights is not what Moses saw, it's what Moses heard as God reveals His character to Moses and he says, "I'm a God who's merciful, who's gracious, who's kind, who's steadfast in love." When Moses wanted to know who God was, God told Moses who He was. He revealed His attributes and His character to God. That's how we know God. J.I. Packer says, "How can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. Let me ask you, what comes to your mind when you think about God? Be honest with yourself here. Don't give the proper Sunday school answer or the answer that we know is the right answer to give because we're sitting in church. But truly, what comes to your mind when you think about God? what's going to come to your mind when you wake up tomorrow morning? What will be the thoughts you think about God? Let's be real honest with ourselves here. Will we even have thoughts of God when we wake up in the morning? Or will the first thing we turn our minds to be the to-do list that we have for the day? Through the small mundane inconveniences of life and the daily chores we have, what are your thoughts about God? When the big trial or the temptation hits, what are your thoughts about God? How we view God is directly related to how we live in this life and whether or not we're going to be able to trust him. Tozer goes on to say in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. In these last few moments that we have, I want to then look And try and extract from David and some of the other psalms that he wrote, what were some of his thoughts of God? What were some of his thoughts about God? I'm going to read a lot of verses. You don't have to turn to all of them, but you can jot down the references if you want to look them up later. Psalms, chapter 4, verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O God, make me dwell in safety. David sees his well-being and his safety, not as a result of his plans, his wisdom, his preparation, but as coming from God alone. For you alone, O God, make me dwell in safety. Psalm chapter 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. David sees God as high and lifted up, as majestic and set apart. That word for majestic means powerful, excellent, noble, glorious, and worthy. Like Moses in the song that the people of Israel sing in Exodus 15, verse 11, when they're delivered from the Red Sea, there is no one like you, God, majestic in holiness, awesome in deeds. That's how David views God. Psalm chapter 11, verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple The Lord's throne is in heaven. David sees God as the one sitting on the throne, not himself, not any other earthly king. God and God alone reigns and rules and none can compete with him. It doesn't matter who holds the presidency. It doesn't matter who's sitting on the Supreme Court. It doesn't matter who the governor is. God and God alone sits on the throne. And as Nebuchadnezzar realized in Daniel chapter four, the most high has everlasting dominion. He does according to his will and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God rules. And David recognized that in the midst of his suffering and in his trial. Psalm thirteen five through 6, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David looks back on God's past deliverances. He reminds himself of how God has dealt bountifully with him in the past, lavished upon him a steadfast, never changing, never ending, always and forever love. And that brings him comfort because as he rehearses God's past deliverance, he sees God currently sustaining him and he looks ahead to God's future deliverance. Psalm 18, one through three, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. David was a brave and a mighty man of war, but he acknowledged that God was his strength. God was his fortress. God was his shield. In his initial plea, David wanted to run away to the wilderness for refuge. David reminds himself, though, that I only need to run to God who is worthy to be praised because he is my refuge. I don't need to run away. He is my fortress and my strength is found in him. Psalm 18, 6, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. David reminds himself that God does indeed hear him. So in Psalm 55, he starts saying, please hear me, God. And then he remembers, God does hear me, though, in my past distress, so I know he's listening now. Psalm chapter 20, 6 through 7, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven. With the saving might of his right hand, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. David knows that deliverance is not based on the size of an army, the weapons they possess, the odds that they face, but is determined by God and God alone. And that's who he chooses to trust. Psalm 31, 3 through 5, for you are my rock and my fortress, and for your namesake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net that they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Psalm thirty-two, ten: many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Psalm 36, five through seven. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Time and time again, David comes back to God's steadfast love and faithfulness to his children. That's what What brings him comfort? Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Psalm 40 verse 11, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Psalm 51.1, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David knows that God is a gracious and a merciful God, extending forgiveness to his children. He's felt the weight of his sin, and he knows that God is a God who ransoms and redeems undeserving sinners. In all of these passages here, which were all Psalms written by David, we see that David has a high view of God. He praises God over and over for his care, his love, his provision, his mercy, his grace. In each of these Psalms, David's proclaiming one or more of God's attributes and articulating who God is. These truths that David knew about God, his view of God brought him comfort during his trial. And that's what led him to be able to say in verse 22, cast your burden upon Yahweh and he will sustain you and he will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Because of who God was, David was able to say, I can cast my burden upon him. He knew that God would not forget him. He knew that God would not abandon him. He knew that God was a just God. And that in time, in God's time, that God would bring down the wicked. Verse 23, he says, but you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days. See, I think sometimes we even face this struggle in our world. We see the wicked prosper. We see evil, unrighteous men make a lot of money, have success, and we see believers struggle and suffer through life, and we're saying, God, what's going on here? And David was able to say, you know what? God is a just God. He will punish the wicked, but it'll be in his time, not mine, and I can rest in that, and I will trust in God. In running to God and reminding himself of who God is, David was able to calm his weary heart to cast his burden on the Lord, he was able to say, it doesn't matter what's going on in my life. God's got this. My God. There's a personal aspect to this. He doesn't just say the God. He says, my God has got this and I'll rest in him. And notice he doesn't know the outcome of this trial yet though. At this point in the Psalm, he hasn't yet been delivered from Absalom, but he's still saying, my God's got this. Yes, I was scared. Yes, I was afraid. Yes, I was in anguish. But God's got this. And I think we need to remember that sometimes in life. Whatever we're going through. If you're having those difficulties in your marriage, which, you know what? They happen in the church. Sometimes we think, no, 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 that's only for non-Christians. No, it happens in the church. We have rebellious children that walk away from the Lord. We have difficulties with friends and with family within the church we have health issues, we have battles with sin, all of the things we have, we can step back and just say, my God's got this. I'm hurting God, I need you, but I know you've got this because of who you are. David's strength, his comfort, his balm for his hurting soul was his knowledge of God and the relationship that he had with God. This particular passage has been meaningful to me and even to Matt. Over these last few months, as Matt Davis has been dealing with some of his health issues, him and I have have kind of bonded a little bit over some of the the health issues we both face. Uh, About a year ago or so, I started having some neurological symptoms, went to the doctor, and they discovered lesions on my brain. They they don't know what they are. They suspected MS. We've been going through tests all year long. There's still uncertainty. They're still not sure what those lesions are. I have a follow-up with a neurologist next week. And so this past year, I've dealt with some of this uncertainty. I've dealt with being unknown what the future has. And days when I can look to the Lord and I can trust him. And then days when I've been hurting. When I've been in anguish over the uncertainty of what the future holds. And yet I know that I can trust in the one who holds the future. I can step back in the midst of my health struggles. Matt can step back in the midst of health struggles. Those of us in this room, Fred, all of us can step back and we can say, my God's got this. Because he's good, because he's righteous, because he's holy, and because he loves his children. So David ends his chapter saying, cast your burden upon Yahweh. He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. And at the end of verse 23, but I will trust in you. Whatever your burden may be, whatever is weighing on you, run to God. Pour your heart out to God, meditate on who he is, preach truths to yourself, and cast your burden on him, the one who is our rock, our refuge, and our salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that during times of trial, difficulty, and discouragement, We can take our eyes off ourselves and fix them on you and run to you and cry out to you and know that you are not a God who is far off, but you are a God who is near and you are a God who is listening to your children. And then Lord, we can trust in you and rest in you. We can preach truths to ourselves, reminding ourselves of who you are and what you've done in us. Lord, we were once dead in our sin, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive. Lord, thank you for making us alive. And Lord, we can trust that if you had the power to make our dead hearts alive, you also have the power to see us through every difficulty and trial that we face in life. So Lord, help each of us not to want to run and hide and flee, but to run to you, our rock, our rest.